Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. M-S-W Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, December 29th, 2023. We were almost at the end of the year. It is the last Friday of the year. I'm really excited today to be talking to a senior reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the AJC. Please welcome Tamar Hallerman. Hi. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to talk to you because you are also the co-host of an incredible podcast for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution called Breakdown. And your your other co-hosts, uh, Bill Rankin, Shannon McCaffrey, uh, I think it's a wonderful podcast. And recently you got to sit down with District Attorney Fonnie Willis and ask her some questions. And uh, tell me like the overall uh, feeling of the interview, because uh, you know I've listened to this a couple of times now. It's an incredible episode, but the, it's an award-winning series. Everybody should uh, subscribe to this podcast breakdown. But she, she started off kind of curt and short, but she opened up by the end. What were your thoughts when you sat down with her? 
Sure. By way of background, Breakdown has been around for for 10 seasons, and the first eight were hosted by my colleague Bill Rankin, and it really started out as kind of your bread and butter true crime podcast. But for season nine, Bill decided he wanted to delve into the, the Trump investigation here locally in Fulton County, which I had been covering for a while. So we partnered up and we spoke with Fonnie Willis very early on in the reporting process for that season. So spring of 2022. And of course, she's been at the center of our lives as we've been reporting on this investigation, especially as she brought this massive indictment against former President Trump and 18 others. But really, since the beginning of that podcast, since April 2022, we really had not gotten a long sit-down interview with the DA since she introduced this blockbuster of an indictment. So we were super excited when she agreed to do this. We'd had kind of a standing interview request every time there was breaking news. We would ask her team, we want to talk to her. We'd love to talk to her. And overall, you know, she's she's done media availabilities here and here, here and there, but her team has really kept her very insulated. So we were very excited in this moment um, to be able to sit down and talk to her. And initially, when we got in there, we could tell she wasn't in the most talkative mood. <laughs> and, and her answers are kind of short and curt. Um, she doesn't really want to open up about a lot of things. But then as the episode goes on, you really see her open up. She's especially known my colleague, Bill Rankin, who's been our legal affairs reporter for more than a decade. So you can kind of see her especially warm up when Bill starts talking to her, especially when we start kind of diving into some of her past work, um, especially in Atlanta Public Schools cheating case that she brought uh, back in 20. 13, 2014, 2015 in that era. And she was the lead prosecutor on that case. It really was the first time she used Georgia's sweeping racketeering law. And you could kind of see the sparkle in her eye. She began to talk about that. And it it was a pretty remarkable interview. She was determined not to make news. We could tell that pretty quickly, (laughs) especially when we asked her about some of the newsier items of the day. But it was interesting to get her thoughts, especially as we got her to reflect a little bit more on the last year in this case. Yeah. And I noticed early on in the interview, she really I, she really wanted to establish the idea that this isn't special. I don't know why all this is news. And But, you know, she was very kind. Like, I understand why you're reporting this. I understand why the mugshot of Donald Trump is, is a newsworthy thing. And I'm not trying to say, you know, you, you shouldn't be covering it. But she's like, to me, this is another defendant. This is just another case. But I did notice when, you know, especially when your co-host was asking about you know, maybe plea deals or stuff specific to the Trump case, she would be like, well, look, you know, I'm not going to talk about an open case. However, I can talk about the process. So let me tell you about APS. That's the Atlanta Public Schools case. And she would use that kind of as a bolster or a framework to discuss or answer your questions about the Trump case. Because you know, particularly with the the plea deal uh, conversation, it was 35, I think, defendants. Um, and so uh, talk a little bit about that, because I, f- I found it fascinating that, you know, at first she was like, I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to talk about this. But then she was like, well, let me talk about APS and the process and how it, you know, and then we can, uh, you know, basically apply it to what's going on with the Trump case. Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that. In general, prosecutors are always kind of loath to talk about active cases. They don't want to do anything that will show their hand to the general public. And we know that all these defense attorneys for the remaining 15 defendants are watching every single word that she says and does not say super closely. But the APS case is a really useful framework, especially when it comes to understanding the type of prosecutor that DA Willis is. Um, 
as you mentioned, she indicted very widely in that case initially, some three dozen uh, teachers, administrators, educators as part of that huge cheating scandal, um, which involved a lot of lower performing schools in lower income parts of Atlanta. And she accused them of basically operating a racketeering conspiracy in order to change test scores so they could get um, bigger bonuses, more resources. And really, the, the person at the top of that conspiracy was Beverly Hall, who was at the time the, the superintendent of Atlanta Public Schools. Um, Ms. Hall ended up passing away before there was any sort of verdict in that case. But I think you can kind of see the way DA Willis operates. Indict widely, start flipping people one by one by getting all these plea deals and kind of letting the dominoes kind of bring her up to the top of this alleged conspiracy. And she was able to do it. She got, I think, 11 convictions in that case, and I think really sent a message about who she is and what she's about. Yeah, she got a ton of plea deals in that case. And that, uh, you know, she talked about that when we asked about the plea deals. What well, we, I'm like, I'm just now part of your team all of a sudden. When you guys asked about, um, we the people, uh, when you asked about the plea deals in, in this particular case. And she had, I think, a really great answer for why there haven't been um, I mean, there's four is a lot, but there, she's expecting more. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, the four pleas that she has been able to get in this case have been pretty notable because these aren't necessarily the smallest fish in this case. You kind of expect traditionally you go after the smallest fish, get slightly bigger fish, medium fish, and kind of work your way up to the top. Right, like start with the Chili's and the Floyds and the Cooties and work, you know, work up to the work up to the Powell's and the Chesbros, right? Exactly. And especially Sydney Powell, Jenna Ellis, they'd spent time with the former president in the weeks after the 2020 election. So it was very notable that she was able to get those plea deals early. At the same time, based on on some of our reporting, the DA offered pretty darn generous plea offers to some of these other defendants, some of these smaller fish that you mentioned, and folks turned her down. And so I think on the one hand, it's noteworthy that she's gotten the deals she's gotten. But on the other hand, it's sort of surprising, given, given the terms of what she was at least offering initially, um, things like no jail time, only misdemeanors, not even felonies. I don't know if those offers in particular are still on the table. Um, but the fact that there's not more, I think, has raised some eyebrows. But the DA in our interview mentioned to her, she's not concerned about that. She thinks there's going to be more plea deals down the line, especially as we get closer to some of the bigger deadlines in this case. Um, in early January, there's going to be a deadline for pretrial motions and filings. It's kind of wonky, but you you can kind of see the strategies all these defense attorneys are going to try and do to deal derail the DA's case. I think once they start getting rulings from Judge Scott McAfee to see kind of what he's willing to admit and not admit, I think then you'll start to see, or at least this is what the DA said, you're going to start to see maybe more of an appetite for plea deals, especially if folks are getting shut down in some of those motions. Yeah. And you want to do that before the, the plea date, the plea deadline, uh, because you can negotiate your plea up to that point. And if I were a lawyer for any of these um, defendants, uh, you know, I'm first of all, I'm not a lawyer, but if I was, I still probably wouldn't. Anyway, if I was, I'd be like, well, let's try to dismiss it. Let's try to get it removed to federal court. Let's try to get it um, any, you know, file all of our pretrial motions by the deadline and see how we fare. Because she, I believe the DA used a drug conviction as a, 
as an example, if you can get the drugs out of evidence or if you can get a really great uh, motions in limine, like a bunch of evidence taken out or, or from trial, then, you know, then you're maybe less likely uh, to cut a deal. But once and I frankly think all of these will be dismissed. They have so far. You know, we've got Clark and Eastman and Meadows trying to go to effect. We've got all sorts of different uh, uh, pretrial motions here. But but after that, I think what what I was thinking about was Meadows, right? Because I, he just lost his bid with the appellate court to remove and and very conservative justice, 11th Circuit Justice Pryor wrote the opinion for the unanimous three judge panel. Meadows, I've I've heard from reporting that he's not one of three people that are going to be offered a plea deal. Like, what does he do? What if somebody who, like if Fonnie Willis wants to take these people to trial, but I thought for sure Sidney Powell wouldn't be somebody that would be dealt with. I thought for sure Chesbro wouldn't be somebody that she would want to cut a deal with because they're so high up the the food chain, so to speak. So maybe there's still an opening for somebody like, um, probably not Rudy, but somebody like Meadows, um, if all of his pretrial motions are exhausted. Did she say anything about, well, I know she didn't talk about anything specific in the case, but I, you know, maybe what are your thoughts on that? She didn't mention anything about Meadows. Our interview was before um, his arguments before the 11th Circuit and that that very quick ruling from the judges that you mentioned. And yes, based on reporting, it doesn't seem like the DA's office has wanted to make any sort of deal with folks like Meadows, um, especially given what he was trying to do to move proceedings out of Fulton County and into federal court where he might get a more favorable jury or even a judge who kind of would be more inclined to dismiss the case. That said... Who knows? We we have no idea the types of conversations that are going on in the DA's office. Maybe Meadows' people, if they figure that, okay, this, this case is staying in Fulton Superior Court and we need to kind of wheel and deal, maybe they give prosecutors an offer they can't refuse. You know, Meadows, based on reporting from national outlets, has been cooperating at least in some capacity with the, the federal um, probe, the Jack Smith uh, January 6th case. Um, I don't know how fully that cooperation is, but this is a man who was at Donald Trump's side in the weeks after the 2020 election. He knows more than just about anybody else in terms of the former president's mindset. He could be a really terrific guide for prosecutors in terms of what the former president actually believed as he was doing all sorts of things to try and overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. And that's what this case hinges on. What did he believe in his heart of hearts? Did he know that he lost but was saying something else anyway? Or did he genuinely believe that? Maybe Mark Meadows could be the key to that. So perhaps prosecutors decide at a later date if he can give them information that he's worth cutting a deal with. At this point, we haven't seen indications of that. But things here change really quickly. And this case has been so full of surprises. You, we have no idea what could come up in these months ahead. Yeah, because I'm not going to say who's eligible for a plea deal until I hear their proffer. Right. I mean, you know, a lot of folks are like, well, if you've got Cassidy Hutchinson, what do you need Meadows for? But I mean, there's another corroborating witness and a very, very key one. So, you know, as you said, things can change rather quickly <laughs> at a moment's notice. And that's why we're so glad that uh, uh, reporters like you are on the ground working for Atlanta Journal-Constitution and, and giving us the story. I want to ask a little bit about the pace of justice. I know um, the, the DA mentioned something about that, too, but I have to take a quick break. So uh, everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. We're talking to senior reporter for the AJC. That is Tamar Hallerman. 
and your incredible award-winning podcast called Breakdown. I, I really, again, can't recommend it enough. Everybody subscribe. It's great to listen to. Go back and listen to previous episodes. They really kind of inform what's going on in, in this current environment. And uh, before the break, I I hinted at uh, wanting to talk about the pace of justice because I, you know, I spend quite a bit of time online sort of defending the Department of Justice's length of time it took to investigate and bring charges uh, against Donald Trump. And nobody kind of was angry at uh, Fannie Willis um, or any of the other states that have brought charges. Michigan, Nevada, for example, we're still waiting on Arizona. Of course, their um, attorney general didn't get there until a year after everybody else's. And Wisconsin, what's going on there? We know Chesbro's on a national tour, uh, <laughs> giving his uh, giving his information to to any prosecutor who will listen. But Fonnie Willis had something to say about the pace of justice and patience. Can you talk a little bit about that? What her thoughts are? <laughs> well, timing has been a key question in this investigation for a really long time. She was investigating. Uh, former President Trump for two and a half years before she ended up bringing charges um, in August. And there were plenty of people locally saying, what the heck is taking so long? She, of course, mentioned, I'm not going to be hurried up by some arbitrary timeline. I'm doing everything that that needs to be done. Now, at, at this juncture, she's asking for a trial to begin in August of 2024. And we asked her a lot about that timeline. Um, Judge McAfee, hasn't suggested when he's going to schedule this trial yet. I think he he mentioned at a recent hearing that he feels like it's a tad early um, before he put something on the calendar. And I think there's a real question now of Donald Trump's schedule next year. There's so many trials in other jurisdictions that the DA has to be mindful of. And so when we asked her about that in our interview, she kind of talked about that and being mindful about dates that were already on the calendar before she kind of um, stepped in. But now looking ahead, I mean, there's questions about all of these cases and whether they'll be able or to continue as planned, right? And in the January 6th case, Jack Smith right now is in front of the Supreme Court trying to get them to weigh in on the issue of presidential immunity, which, by the way, if there's a, a negative ruling from the Supreme Court um, that could shut down what Jack Smith is doing, that would also presumably negatively impact what Fonnie Willis is doing here locally. They won't do that. We don't know at this point. We we really don't. And if that case gets delayed, that could delay everything else in that calendar. Same with the classified documents case, which I believe right now is still on deck for May, but I Judge Cannon. Yeah, I don't think that's going next year at all. I think that's going on into 2025, uh, you know, depending on, I mean, like you said, anything can happen. Um, she is now weighing whether or not to show a bunch of really super classified documents to the Diet Coke valet, which is could be appealable uh, under SEPA from the Department of Justice, and that might get her thrown off the case. We don't know. We just don't know. So yeah, it's going to, it's got to be real hard right now to schedule a Donald Trump trial. And of course, you have this 2024 elections. And what happens if Donald Trump wins and gets inaugurated? You there's not a that. ton of there's not a ton of case law as to what happens, especially because he he would be entering office under indictment in an active case. There there's no precedent to that. Can you continue an active case against somebody once they're inaugurated? This is an issue that would need to be tackled by the Supreme Court and could be dragged on for out for a really long time, or presumably as what Trump's lawyer in Atlanta, Steve Sadow, is saying he doesn't think D.A. Willis can prosecute him at all until after Donald Trump is done with that term if he wins. So not until 2029. And then you have to start worrying about statute of limitations. So scheduling right now is so up in the air, pretty messy. 
<laughs> the DA did not want to talk about it much when we asked her about it. But one thing she did say is that she was opening to starting proceedings earlier here in Fulton County if something were to open up in Trump's schedule. Of course, it's ultimately up to Judge McAfee to decide. And at this point, there are just so many question marks. We'd just be speculating. Yeah, true. And if the March trial, uh, if what I hope and think will happen with the Supreme Court um, where they deny immunity and it's it would be delayed probably a month or two. And if the DOJ says four month trial, that doesn't include the defense's case. That doesn't include jury selection. I mean, you could be pushing it right up to the election um, for the length of the trial. And yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how this all plays out. But I, I was, it was interesting to hear her say, look, we are very considerate of our sister jurisdictions in, in this, these particular cases. And again, with Eugene, the pyramid scheme, but there's a ton of civil trials too, that are on the calendar. You know, a lot of people are like, oh no, he won't be convicted if this March date is delayed. But Alvin Bragg is ready to go with the New York Manhattan DA felony charges uh, in the Stormy Daniels hush money cover-up case. Uh, in March if if nobody else is ready to go. So everyone's just kind of, I, I had the feeling that that Fonnie Willis was like, you know, depending on whether we've got every all defendants' rights are covered and we've got all the pretrial motions decided, we're ready to go when, whenever that's all completed. Uh, and I feel like that's sort of what every prosecutor and judge is kind of like, all right, who you go, nep, no, you first, uh, e, okay. You know, I think, I feel like that's sort of, everyone's just sort of waiting to see what happens. Exactly. I can't overstate how important that Supreme Court ruling is going to be on on presidential immunity. And I think until then, everybody is just sitting on their hands and waiting. One interesting thing that um, Nathan Wade, one of um, D.A. Willis's top deputies mentioned in a recent hearing is that he thinks it'll take him about 30 days to be ready for trial once they get a green light. So I think that's something to look out for. Should there be a clearing in Donald Trump's schedules? Should that Supreme Court case be cleared up? 30 days to to get ready. But this case will also take a pretty long time to um, to adjudicate. I mean, four months for the DA's people to present their case. The defense, of course, will have what they want to say. And right now we have 15 defendants. It'll probably be fewer by then, but still won't be um, a, an open and shut quick case. And then you also have the question of jury selection. Um, there's another RICO case here in Fulton County that D.A. Willis is prosecuting having to to do with the alleged street gang Young Slime Life, which is um, Young Thug's organization. And jury selection took nine months. Um, who knows if it would take that long in a case like this, but you, you'd have to think that people have strong opinions one way or another about Donald Trump. Yeah, I feel like it would take longer. I feel like more people know who and what Donald Trump is and what he's accused of than YSL. But, you know, I don't know. I'm, I don't live in Atlanta. Um, it, it might be the opposite. It might be the other way around. Uh, talk a little bit about, um, it was either you or your your co-host asked about when she was arguing the Harrison Floyd bond revocation, she seemed very personally offended by what he was doing uh, to Ruby Freeman. Uh, what did she have to say about that, about how personal this is for her and, and whether or not she's going to be in the courtroom uh, in this in this trial? Well, a little background on this. Harrison Floyd is the former head of Black Voices for Trump, and he was indicted for his alleged role in the harassment of poll worker Ruby Freeman. 
And the DA sought to revoke his bond just before Thanksgiving for some social media posts he made where he was tweeting about Ruby Freeman, as well as Brad Raffensperger and some other folks in the Secretary of State's office. And it was the first time since the indictment that we saw DA Willis argue in a courtroom. Um, it was her for hours and hours behind the the um, DA's table, which is very notable. Usually she has deputies doing that work for her. And yes, I asked her, you, you could hear it in her voice. She was like personally offended by all of it, so passionate in what she was arguing. And when I asked her about it, she said, yes, I feel very passionately about any witnesses of mine who could be put in danger because some of the defendants in this case. And she did mention, you know, she is a trial lawyer through and through. She really shines, um, you know, when arguing to a jury, um, when questioning witnesses. And she mentioned, you should not be surprised to see me again, especially as we get to the trial phase of this, or at least it's very possible um, to see her again. So I think that's something to keep in mind um, moving forward. Yeah. And you were like, well, your name's on the indictment. She's like, yep, it's right there. <laughs> Don't be surprised to see DA Fani Willis enter the courtroom. Um, I thought it was a incredible uh, interview. I think you and your colleagues did a really outstanding job at like pulling some stuff out into the open that that she didn't seem willing to talk about in the beginning. So so well done, everybody. Go find, search for breakdown wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. We have to subscribe. Subscribing to podcasts is how they chart podcasts and we have to get the fascists off the charts. So subscribing helps. So please do that. And it's free to do, by the way. And um, I appreciate all of the reporting you're doing for AJC as well. That is one of um, several local papers. I'm extremely glad that I have subscribed to. The content is just, it's, it's, a, it, it's wonderful. So thank you so much for your incredible reporting. Is there anything else in that interview you want to talk about or anything else that stood out before I let you go? Well, the one thing that stood out, or it was really kind of foreshadowing something that my colleagues and I were able to uncover later that week. We asked the DA about her choice to ask defendants who had struck plea deals to pen apology letters to Georgia voters, which is kind of unusual. She did it in the Atlanta Public Schools case. But so we asked her about it. Um, you know, and she mentioned she compared it to a relationship and how, you know, if one person in a couple angers somebody else, you need to say you're sorry before you can move on. And she mentioned, as long as it's sincere, I don't care how long it is. Well, later that week, my colleagues and I were able to finally get our hands on those apology letters, mm -hmm. which had been under lock and key ever since they were signed. And we knew that Sidney Powell's would be short, only one sentence, but so was Ken Chesbro's, um, handwritten on on like a line notebook paper as if they were in grade school yeah, turning in an assignment. That's what it reminded me of. <laughs> totally. And I mean, the DA got some flack for those letters. Some people felt like these folks didn't express the remorse that maybe some people thought was necessary. On the other hand, there, was, there were folks I talked to who said, if I was their defense lawyer, I wouldn't want them writing much more than that either. Remember, Ken Chesbro, Sidney Powell face exposure in the January 6th case in Washington. Um, they don't want to see a superseding indictment from Jack Smith. And so they do have to be very careful about their words. Yeah, that was exactly my point, which I found it odd when Chesbro's lawyer went on national television and said, yeah, he's guilty of count 15. He did this. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, dude, stop talking. He's still an indicted co-conspirator in D.C. But, you know, again, I'm not a lawyer. Um, so maybe he had a reason. Probably not. Okay. Thank you again so much. Uh, it's been wonderful um, speaking to you today. And uh, everybody, f where can they find and follow you on social media? 
I'm at Tamar Hallerman, and you can follow us at the AJC too. Uh, all of your support helps. And it's been so cool to see all of our new subscribers from around the country who are just interested in this case. So thanks for giving me the time. Yeah, no problem. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the hosts of The Obscured Podcast. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I'm really excited today to be talking to the two hosts of a new podcast called Obscured. Please welcome Stephanie Marutis and Emily Previty. Hi, you guys. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, thank you so much for having us. I love this series. First of all, it's bingeable. So anybody who's driving anywhere for the holidays, you have now an amazing bingeable podcast to listen to. Uh, but starting with Stephanie, tell me a little bit about your background in in journalism. Yes, um, I got started in public radio after college, uh, working for two NPR affiliates, uh, WYPR in Baltimore and WHYY in Philadelphia. I worked as a general assignment um, news reporter and then uh, transitioned into producing uh, and eventually doing audio documentaries that led me to long-form podcast work. Um, and that has been the extent of my career. And then founding uh, Covenda Media in about uh, 2015 uh, to do production and narratives for social change and working with journalism organizations and social change-minded um, nonprofits mainly to produce podcasts. Oh, very cool. I spent I spent many hours listening to WHYY, so I, I appreciate um, all that work. Uh, Emily, how about you? So I started out in radio working for WXPN, which is a public um, public radio station, mostly music focused. But I was working for the morning news show when I was an undergrad, and then just started working for newspapers basically as soon as I graduated. Eventually, got back into radio, but always had wanted to to. Um, to do podcasting. And, um, you know, when the opportunity came to team up with Stephanie, I definitely jumped on it. And over the years, most of my reporting has focused on government dysfunction and accountability policy driven types of projects. So it was a good fit from that standpoint. Nice. Awesome. All right. So let's talk about the, the series obscured from words to weapons. It is a six episode limited series. Talk about, um, Let's go back to Stephanie. What what was it that made you want to cover this topic? What is the topic and what made you want to cover it? Our topic is focused on survivors of law enforcement trauma. And Emily and I, uh, for Covenda Media, had produced and still do uh, a podcast called At the Core of Care, which is a nursing podcast. And Emily, in particular, uh, worked on several episodes about sexual assault standards um, across the states and met a forensic nurse named Maya Anderson, who is at Morgan State University in Baltimore. And Maya told Emily uh, about her long-term work to develop uh, a protocol for people who present in the emergency department uh, after an encounter with law enforcement. And I'm going to pass it to Emily to take it from there. Yeah. I mean, as Stephanie said, I was working on a podcast about standardizing sexual assault exam processes and came across Maya's name that way. It was for a conference for forensic nurses and very often forensic nurses and sexual assault nurse examiners, it's, you know, they hold both certifications. And she was presenting on her work, developing this protocol. And our conversation just ended up being about that. I also had done some reporting in the past on excessive force and police accountability, things along those lines. It's a topic that I 
cared about, care about, had continued to follow, but hadn't actually reported on in some time, just, you know, switching beats, switching jobs, switching mediums. And there were other, there were other assignments. And I'd been looking for the opportunity to revisit that. And um, it just kind of all came together. We were looking for a topic um, to focus obscured on. And it quickly became apparent that Maya and her work could be a focus um, in the series. And, And she actually, the the episode focused on Maya and her work dropped, just dropped on December 13th. Mm. That's super fascinating because I, I do a lot of work for military sexual trauma, or, or I did when I worked at the VA. What are some of the parallels that you found in talking to Maya between, you know, maybe complex PTSD or even just the protocols of, of how to to show up and what to do when somebody reports some of the parallels between sexual assault and police brutality? Well, I think a trauma-informed approach for sure. The major difference, and I know you're asking for similarities, but I'll get back to that in a moment, is that there isn't a protocol for specific to survivors of law enforcement trauma. And that's, you know, that's the that's the goal. That's the vision is to develop something much like what one might expect to find is available to support survivors of sexual assault. So specific medical exam, training certifications for the examiners and referrals to legal support for follow-up medical care, for mental health counseling, engaging an advocate. So an interdisciplinary wraparound infrastructure, something like that, is the vision at this point that Maya has um, as far as what might be available. So really, other than, you know, it should be a trauma-informed approach, there isn't a lot out there, honestly. Yeah. And also, Stephanie, I'm thinking of the the first episode, which is Commonwealth v. Jimmy Warren, and how it's not just how we, I guess, respond uh, to police brutality after it happens, but how we can prevent it from happening. Because when you take into consideration fight, flight, or fright, those things come into play during the initial encounter, and we can prevent this kind of police brutality from sort of understanding that whole that whole flow. Emily reported this episode, and as we learn in the episode, Jimmy you know, had been uh, apprehended for a crime he did not commit. And you know, I think what Emily was able to show is, you know, what Jimmy experienced growing up, um, you know, being racially profiled, stopped and frisked, and, you know, experiencing that repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Yes. When it happened, Jimmy Warren's case made national headlines, and essentially it established that when police are deciding whether they can stop someone, whether they can pursue someone, whether the stop or the pursuit is justifiable, they need to take into account that just because someone is running, that does not necessarily elevate their guilt. It does not necessarily justify the pursuit or the stop. And in the decision, the justices tied that directly to this long history of generational trauma in communities of color over the police and excessive force and oppression. 
And, you know, as far as the fight or flight thing, to your point, yes, that's exactly what this decision was attempting to establish in the court of law in Massachusetts. Yeah. And, uh, and I, you know, I see a lot of uh, parallels here with sexual assault, you know, but for, first of all, like forgetting details of the trauma, fear of reporting, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's not real unless you report it. And so I think that that was hugely important decision in the courts to understand that running away doesn't, shouldn't add to guilt or make someone seem more guilty because it is a natural response uh, of someone who has complex trauma. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the main topics that uh, y'all cover. And let's start with the distrust of uh, policing in communities of color, because, you know, we see this so much in the media and in these stories, but I don't know that we can really understand until we get down into the weeds of it. Yeah. So I think, you know, we touched on how this theme comes up with respect to Jimmy Warren's case out of Massachusetts. I would say, I would also flag um, episode five. We looked at this issue as it manifests in the lack of connection to the community. And, you know, in Philadelphia, where we are based, it's almost the flip side of that to a sense where the push has just been to reduce the footprint of police and neighborhoods versus the push we've seen at times elsewhere for community policing. Um, so to reduce in Philadelphia that footprint and unnecessary interactions with police. And that's happened through policy changes locally, through driving equity legislation that essentially makes eight driving offenses secondary. So you can still be ticketed, can't just be the impetus or the primary reason for the stop. And that's, you know, stuff like expired registration, dice in the mirror, taillight out, and so on. So that's new. It was passed last year. And then through the courts, the city of Philadelphia has been under a consent decree for more than a decade stemming from a lawsuit over racially disproportionate, unjustified stops, meaning there wasn't reasonable suspicion to justify the officer stopping the person or people that um, consent decree is known as the Bailey Agreement. And as part of that, um, there's an entirely different approach to quality of life stops in the city. So things like loitering or smoking pot. And there's monitoring of those stops um, via the courts, in, including by attorneys with um, a long history of civil rights practice who brought the original lawsuit, who work or have worked for the ACLU and things. There's been a reduction in stops and unjustified stops. However, at last check, the unjustified stops are happening still um, disproportionately to people of color in the city. And, you know, certainly we've also seen and heard over the years along the lines of community policing, for example, one thing that came to mind when I read, you know, when we kind of got a little bit of a sense of what we were going to talk about in this interview were residency requirements, which your listeners might be familiar with, you might be familiar with, that police need to live in, in the city where they work. And that might work in some places. It at minimum is not a panacea. When I was reporting in the past in Atlantic City, for example, that police department had a residency requirement for new hires. After a certain point in time, people could move to a different town. Very often they did. And there have been major issues with that department over the years with excessive force and state supervision and so on. So again, at minimum, it's not a panacea. So, you know, I, I would say as far as 
your point about the distrust, these are some of the different ways of addressing that issue that have come up in reporting for for us on this series and a little in, in the past as well. Yeah, and I think there is no one single answer, right? I think it's it's um it's always a continuum of multiple solutions that kind of have to be applied. And I want to ask a little bit about that and accountability and solutions, but I do need to take a quick break. So will you stay with me? Absolutely. Great. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm speaking with the hosts of the Obscured podcast, Stephanie and Emily. And uh, before the break, I said I wanted to talk a little bit about, before we get to solutions, we have to talk about accountability. Talk a little bit about the lack thereof, right? We have qualified immunity. We have these police unions that, you know, cops get fired or they get marks on their record and they get picked up by another unit that doesn't bring their records over. And we had no idea that they have this long history of police brutality or racial profiling. So talk about what you learned about accountability or the lack thereof during this podcast series. Yeah. In our second episode, uh, we talk about barriers to accountability with Joanna Schwartz. Um, she's a law professor uh, at UCLA. And this year, she wrote a book that some of your listeners um, may be familiar with. It's called Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. And um, Joanna, she's a leading expert on police misconduct litigation in the U.S. And she was a lawyer who, you know, worked on civil rights lawsuits and settlements and sued the police, you know, before she became a law professor. And, you know, what she's doing in this book, and, and we talked to her in the conversation, is um, she wanted to set the record straight on, you know, that there is this myth that it's really easy to sue the police. And, um, you know, what she lays out is that there are a variety of shields and and uh, in particular, the one that we really talked about the most was qualified immunity. Um, it's one of the biggest protections. It protects government officials, um, in this case, right, the police from being sued for money damages. And um, it shields these officials from liability unless they violate what's called um, clearly established law. You know, we learned so much from Joanna. The book is exquisitely um, detailed. And she talked to us about how qualified immunity was created by the Supreme Court in 1967. And that over time, you know, it has gotten narrower in the sense that it's um, the protection has, you know, intensified to pr protect the police officer. And so, you know, the litigation can only really move forward um, when there has to have been a previous decision from the court that um, what Joanna says, you know, had to have the almost nearly identical same facts. And that makes it really hard then to sue the police, you know, to be able to meet that criteria. Um, yeah. Yeah. And what about this whole thin blue line thing? Well, all the structures that Stephanie is referencing in her explanation of qualified immunity, I mean, all of those things are upheld by the thin blue line concept. The thin blue line concept upholds them as we've been talking about, you know, there's a real interest um, and culture of, I, I don't, I mean, silence kind of, right. Or um, lack of transparency, really uh, lack of accountability. And we get into this more so on sort of, sort of a different level, a lo more local level, legislative, administrative, in episode five of our series, you know, we, we mentioned some of the other things we touched on in that episode, but we also looked at um, the disciplinary process where, where we live in Philadelphia and broadened it out a bit for context. But, 
you know, it's kind of like this black box. Um, you try to get, get records or information about what's gone on um, in, in a jail or a prison or even within a police department. And it takes years. It, it is very difficult. And obviously that varies by state. In Pennsylvania, um, we're, we're not great. Um, when it comes to public access on a variety of fronts. And so it is, you know, it is markedly more difficult than your average state elsewhere um, to, to get that access. But it's not really easy anywhere to get this, what all, many regard should be or really is public information. And I think, you know, that kind of ties into the issues with public trust. Then you have mistrust from the public and that kind of gets into the us versus them thing, or, you know, that almost reinforces the thin blue line in itself because now you're creating this, um, like this force or this atmosphere where there's a little bit of defensiveness, right. On the part of the police, because there's just lack of transparency. So there's public mistrust and it all kinds of kind of feeds one another, right? Like sort of snowballs. Exactly. And we, certainly talked to, heard from, learned about police who left and then wrote books or started speaking or ran for office um, and, you know, really couldn't say anything when they were still part of the police department. Yeah. I think that's what, one of the things that surprised me about the George Floyd trial, that thin blue line sort of crumbled. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of hoping that that would be a uh, you know, portend of better things to come. Um, and speaking of better things to come, we've got a couple of minutes left. I would love to know, because one of the great things about this podcast about Obscured is like, well, here's some solutions, right? So how do how do communities deal with trauma inflicted by the police? We mentioned a couple of police reforms um, and then to pick back up in the disciplinary, disciplinary angle in Philadelphia. And, you know, we learned that this is a national trend as well to establishing citizen oversight with more teeth. So involving residents um, in the oversight and disciplinary process, and then actually making those entities more powerful in Philly, you know, the city recreated its oversight entity. And it's an entirely new body and has a different name. It's the Citizens Police Oversight Commission replacing the Police Advisory Commission. And it's not just it's not just the name. Um, it's created to be more independent, have a larger staff, have more investigative power. And it's early on. We can see some changes already. For example, there's it's now required that the police board of inquiry, which runs disciplinary hearings in the city, that has to have at least one non-law enforcement resident um, sitting on it. And um, that's actually upheld. It's part of the police union's most recent contract. Mm-hmm. So you know, we know those cases are moving faster compared to a couple of years ago as a result. But again, only time will tell as far, you know, how far those reforms we're talking about can go, given what we've already touched on as far as qualified immunity, the power of unions, binding arbitration, which your listeners probably know, but it basically means these, you know, panels of, um, arbitrators, their decisions are binding and there's, thought that the process is kind of corrupted as far as, you know, how those decisions are made. And it's basically, this is all embedded in the law. And legislatures are very slow to move in Pennsylvania and other states um, on anything that could be perceived as 
anti-law. Right, or soft on crime or whatever. Right. Well, thank you both so much. Obscured is available wherever you get your podcasts. Could you tell everybody where they can find and follow you all as well? You can find us on social at Cuvenda Media. Uh, That's K-O-U-V-E-N-D-A. Cuvenda is the Greek word for chat, talk, conversation. I'm on social media at Emily underscore Previty. Great. Thank you both so much. Again, everybody check out Obscured wherever you get your podcasts. I really appreciate you taking the time today. This is such an important topic and y'all have so much experience uh, in in reporting and and I'm so glad that you're uh, on this and the, I, the amount of research that has gone into this is just uh, so valuable and incredible. I appreciate your time. Thank you everybody for listening to all the interviews I cooked up for you this week. Thanks again to uh, Tamar Hallerman and the hosts of the Obscured podcast for joining me today. We will be back in your ear Sunday for Jack. Until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, take care of your family. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG, and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.